Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Seth Jason, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. Good hey, to see you, Chris. you doing, Chris. We've got earnings from Google, Microsoft, Intel, and a whole bunch of banks. We will talk with David Novak, the chairman and CEO of Yum Brands. And as always, we've got a few stocks on our radar, but we'll begin with the big macro. Weekly jobless claims fell to their lowest point in nearly four years, and the rate on a 30-year mortgage fell to a record low. Seth, Jason, I'll start with you. Those both sound like pretty good things to me. What do oh, you think? Unless you just refinance and you didn't <laughs> thank tick you, the thank bottom. You. Rub, rub salt in the oh, wound. That's another yeah. eighth of a point we could have gotten. No, this, these... is, this is the big macro. This is not the big Seth. <laughs> Man. It is good news. It's it's a little bit of good news. Weekly jobless claims fall. Maybe we'll see that unemployment rate tick up as people kind of dribble back in. But mm-hmm. th- this is a je- the right direction we want to be going. Sure, it'd be nice to be getting there faster, but you take what you can get. And the rate on the 30-year mortgage falling to a record low, there, there are probably a variety of effects to that. And in the past, I'm guessing that this has something to do with it. Europe being a basket case still, so American I've, I've bonds yeah. is still being a safe haven. That is one of the things that drives interest rates down on mortgages. And that seems like not a big deal, but if somebody can refinance, they got a couple hundred extra bucks a month to spend and mm-hmm. they spend it, it helps the rest of the economy. Ron, you're a big employment guy. Is your lower lip quivering when you look at this? <laughs> well, I hate to rate on our parade. We've been so optimistic lately, but I am hearing more and more rumblings of QE3. Where are you hearing these rumblings from? Are you plugged in? <laughs> Open a newspaper. Okay, no, you're reading the rumblings, technically. But it would be helpful, but the reason perhaps it's needed is A, because Europe's a mess, B, because housing is stuck in the mud, and uh, it could be as much as $1 trillion of, of mortgage backed security purchases to come in and keep interest rates low. Interest rates lower, it's great, but the need for it is what's troubling. So, wait, so but as long fit- as Europe's a basket case, we won't need that yeah. particular piece of a QE. And, are people holding off on borrowing because the rates are too high now? I was going to say the Fed. The, <laughs> yeah, so the Fed so. is is thinking about it's a third round yes. of, it's, of it's, bond purchases. It's nothing but troubling, in my opinion. Yeah. James, what do you think? I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that that we're trying to solve a debt problem with more debt, and and it's it's ultimately not the way we want to go. Yeah, it makes no sense on the face of it, but in the end, it's the only thing that's ever been effective at softening the debt problem. So, although I think it's also ridiculous, it's, it's sort of like the cure is is part of the problem. Stock market will like problem. it, though. Stocks are likely oh, yeah. to go higher if the Fed yeah. keeps coming in and buying assets. Shares of Google down 8% Friday morning after the company's quarterly profits came in lower than expected. Ron, you're a Google guy. What happened? <laughs> what does that mean? Guy. <laughs> we do own it in million-dollar portfolio. The street is focusing on, on two main things. One, the fall in the cost per click metric, which is the amount that uh, marketers pay um, to Google for search. And then the second is the increased spending that Google um, has put into place to build for the future. Um, and both of those things together um, have, have caused the earnings to miss expectations, uh, and the stock is selling off. I'm not particularly worried. The uh, the paid click growth rate was really high, 34%. 
Um, I think Google knows what it's doing in terms of spending for the future. Um, so we'll have to let that future play out. We have the stock on hold, and we have had it on hold at, at current price. It's just a bit too high for us to initiate positions, but I, th- I think things are still fine. Seth? I'd, I'd be a little bit more worried, and it's about that price per click thing. There was an interesting article, or an interesting few articles I read this week, which confirmed my biases, which is why I like them, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's the best thing. <laughs> which, is Love that, that. which is that uh, Google, if you I think Google ruined the internet in a lot of ways, the stupid AdWords uh, ads that are everywhere. And yeah. so now actually people, research shows people you know, have quit looking at ads. And the reason that, the, that AdWords worked for Google for a while is people, the first thing they started tuning out on the internet was display ads. Well, mm-hmm. then they started tuning out AdWords. And the one of the articles I read pointed out that the only people who are still clicking on these dumb AdWords ads anymore are, are a horrible demographic for advertisers. They're like tw- mid 20 to 30 year old people with you know no money and i think that if that continues you're going to see those pay-per-click rates continue to crater and you will not be able to make it up in volume that could be the case this quarter a big chunk of that fall was due to foreign currency um translations so if if we want to remove that it it perhaps isn't as bad as it looks it was an eight percent decrease so perhaps it's a little less than that in reality. So what is the big opportunity for Google going forward? Because we heard a lot last year about Google Plus, but there are questions about Facebook's ability to monetize its user base, and Facebook has a heck of a lot more people in it than Google Plus does. It's all about search with with Google, whether it's Android or Google Plus or or what have you. Um, it, it's all about uh, getting people to click, and, and Seth has raised his concerns about uh, about that business model. But um, you know, it, it continues to be the primary driver of revenue. Shares of Microsoft closed the week on a positive note, up on Friday after its latest earnings. Uh, Seth, shares of Microsoft close to a 52-week high. What's going on there? Well, they still look cheap. Even ask Ron, I'm sure, over there. <laughs> Agreed. The big, the big Google. Uh, this is an interesting quarter for Microsoft because nothing interesting is going on, right? So the fact that eh, revenues met expectations, not up a whole lot, uh, earnings per share, depending on whose estimates you go for, they beat or missed uh, or met, whatever. The thing with Microsoft is that they've got a lot going forward. And so they're going to have Windows 8 operating system coming out, uh, they say, uh, in about the third quarter of this year, sometime in the fall of uh, 2012. And uh, and uh, the Xbox is sort of a, a star this quarter. This is something they have uh, not. They don't. They don't probably play it up as much as they ought to. The Xbox is pretty much a huge category for them, making them billions it's of dollars. It's making profits now. now. Yeah, and it's yeah. been making profits for a while. And this is a category. The interesting thing to me here is that this is yet another category where everyone for years said, "Stop doing this. It costs you money." There's an entrenched competitor, Sony, that is way better than you are. You don't know what you're doing. Just give up. I mean, that's what people said to Microsoft about Office. It's what they said about server tools, and that's what. And of course, they've had big hits in those areas as well. And it's what people currently say about phones and about tablets. So this is, uh, I think, yet another vindication of the Microsoft strategy. And I would not write them off. I would not write them out of the phone business or the tablet business. They tend to do well in the long term when they put their mind to it. Run completely great, and I don't want to be like one of those analysts that are constantly making excuses for companies. But, but you're um, this time. PC sales were artificially low in the quarter due to the flooding in Thailand, which caused some supply um, interruption, um, and that affects um, Microsoft's Windows Windows operating systems business. So that was kind of the the part of the earnings release that looked the worst. And some of that, I think, was one time. So, Seth, just to close out on Microsoft, is the is the bigger opportunity for that company? Is it 
is it the Xbox or is it Windows 8 and really the Nokia partnership and seeing that pay off, particularly when it comes to mobile? Well, it's a combination of all those factors because they hopefully combine to, to give you some kind of a, uh, an ecosystem. So the Xbox and, and Windows Live ecosystem, I think, is is growing and so that is you know there's there's cloud storage of you can have cloud storage of office documents you have cloud storage of your video game saves all of this is linked to your single sort of windows profile and as they continue to get people into that uh, i wouldn't call it a walled off ecosystem but as you pull people in it becomes sticky so if windows 8 uh, is is a real hit on both you know notebook computers and on bigger PCs and on tablets. They'll pull more people into that ecosystem, and as they do that, they they sell them more products. A lot of big banks reporting earnings this week. James, uh, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and the word I kept seeing in the media reports that showed up time and time again. The word was disappointing. The general trend, Chris, was bad investment banking. Okayish retail banking, maybe uh, you know Goldman halfway underperformed, Citigroup, Morgan, and Stanley, Morgan Stanley underperformed. Uh, and these guys are seeing reduced bonuses, which I think we're all kind of sad about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, J.P. No. Morgan capped at one hundred thousand dollars cash. Uh, but J.P. Morgan's retail loans were okay, and Bank of America is kind of interesting because they posted good numbers in the I don't know what to make of it department in the sense that $2.9 billion in gains came from the sale of their China Construction Bank holdings, uh, another $2.4 billion related to debt sales. So it's sort of like saying, honey, I made an extra $100,000 this year because I sold your jewelry. Uh, I mean, you can't do <laughs> My that, wife loves uh, that so often. Exactly. Uh, one interesting fact, though, I just said on the Bank of America, according to, to Business Insider, the, the $5 debit fee mm-hmm. uh, caused a 20% uh, increase in account cancellations, which is pretty oh, material. That's, that's wow. got to be one of the worst business mistakes of the past five years. Uh, one of the headlines I saw on Fortune, uh, the headline was, bank investors better get used to low returns. I know that collectively, we're not necessarily huge fans of the big Wall Street banks. Um, is this now at a point where we should be staying even farther away from investing in these banks? Well, low returns are okay if, if that's what we know what's coming and we can predict them. We are definitely seeing the end of banking as we knew it with mid-20% returns on equity. This is back to, to banking just being banking or, or, or heading that way. So, so yeah, they are going to be more stable going forward. Coming up, Apple is trying to shake up the textbook industry. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Ron Gross as we hit some of the big headlines of the week. Intel's fourth quarter earnings better than expected, James. How, how is the Chris, chip maker? you know Wall Street types. They, they love to get excited about things. And, and On the upside and the downside, they like to pronounce death uh, prematurely. <laughs> and people thought the PC was dead. It's not dead. It's just slowly aging. It's sleeping. And, and <laughs> Intel was able to pull off a revenue and an earnings beat uh, because of this, which is great news for Intel. I'm frankly looking at, at the bigger picture still, which is, uh, mobile. If you look at a chart of PC sales, they, they've really plummeted, and it's all about mobile devices. Intel's chips, if you've been following the story, use too much power to to compete in, in, in mobile, but but now they say they've reached power parity. So we're going to see where that goes, and that's a, like a, a two-year story there. Yeah, it's even a little more complex than that because uh, Intel's Atom microprocessor chipset, which is the low-power chipset, uh, those those sales were way down quarter over quarter, uh, year over year for the full year. And the reason is those were sort of destined for netbooks. And as we all remember, 
netbooks were this thing that everyone thought was going to be awesome forever, and it turned out that they were popular for about a year and a half. <laughs> um, James, in terms of Intel's earnings, I saw some reports, analysts saying that this is a bellwether for the economy writ large. It, it points to business spending, that sort of thing. Do you agree with that, or do you think it's it does? I mean, we had the same Thailand flood issue that affected Intel. I think it cost them a billion dollars. Uh, so it, it does show. Intel's chips are in eighty percent of PCs, so people are buying those. I mean, it says something about the economy and, and globally too. That's the other story I should say is it's not just a North American thing; it's it's a global thing. The PC is much more popular in emerging markets proportionally than in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, quarter uh, fourth quarter uh, revenue by by business units. So PC client group that's business purchases for the most part up seventeen percent year over year. Data center big data center chips up eight percent. Those are pretty decent growth rates for a for a category that's supposed to be dead. Uh, one of the big stories coming out of the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, which happened earlier this month, was uh, the Ultrabook. Uh, Ultrabook is Intel's standard that combines uh, sort of the best elements of laptops and tablets. Uh, you've got super lightweight computers that boot up very quickly. Um, That's the idea. Really robust capabilities. Seth, when you think about the Ultrabook, is this is this something that a year from now, because we've talked in the past about the iPad and Amazon's Kindle Fire being sort of uh, a candidate to be the primary competitor. Do you think a year from now we're l instead talking about the Ultrabook as the primary competitor? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Ultrabook kills off almost all the other tablets, probably not the iPad, because if people want an iPad, they want an iPad. For what right. reason, I still don't know. But an Ultrabook, especially the ones that are going to come out later in the year, which will have a better Intel architecture, lower power, a little more power, uh, lower electricity consumption, but a little more powerful, as well as Windows 8, which should be more sophisticated and require less power. Between those two, you're going to be able to have a really small, sleek, uh, you know, netbook-type computer, except it will run regular programs, mm -hmm. you know, it'll run them pretty quickly, uh, boot up instantly, and it'll weigh about the same as if you'd bought a tablet plus an external keyboard. So, Where, did the, where do they stand from a pricing perspective? Well, so the, so the first ones that came out uh, were in the range of like 800 to 1000 bucks. Intel wants them all to stay below 1000 They want them priced sort of slightly below the MacBook Pro. So it'll, you know, that's all going to shake up. And in fact, some industry uh, analysts and some in the industry predicted in a couple of years you'll be able to get a pretty fancy one for five, 600 bucks. I was going to say, the idea of a lightweight laptop seems like such a good idea that Apple had it three years ago in the MacBook <laughs> Air. But that's, that's a, a pricier uh, uh, well, that thing that takes longer to load yeah, up. Yeah, and it's a little bit bigger, and uh, it, uh, it, you know, like most Macintosh, it doesn't really actually run computers that do real work, but it does impress people at the coffee shop. <laughs> Earlier this week, Yahoo co-founder Jerry Yang resigned from the board of directors at Yahoo, Yahoo Japan, and Alibaba Group. Uh, Ron, yeah. shares of Yahoo were Is there up. anything left? They were. Sh shares were up on this news. Um, so clearly, yeah. Wall Street was happy to see Jerry Yang walk out the door. Yeah, he was basically viewed at this point as an impediment to uh, creating shareholder value, should we say, in the form of shedding assets. He. He uh, supposedly was against getting rid of the um, Yahoo Japan assets, the Alibaba uh, um, assets. And without him there, per perhaps it makes it easier um, for Scott Thompson, the new CEO, to get that done. Uh, Yang still owns 3.8% of the company, but not enough to, to influence uh, any kind of voting in any major way. So we'll see. If this creates value, uh, we'd be happy at Million Dollar Portfolio. We own it there. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, you've been, you should be just 
excited jumping. You've been praying for, for Yang's empire to be torn asunder. <laughs> the, the whole point is a transaction, right? That's what yeah. you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see uh, perhaps even a, a, as much as $17 yeah. billion dollars for the Asian assets. And Do you, you can call off those hitmen now. <laughs> Do you expect uh, the sale of those assets to come in this calendar year? I kind of do, yes, yes. If, if you're forcing me to give a prediction. I'm forcing you. Yeah, we're all about and we're going to hold you to it. Uh, Apple reports earnings next Tuesday, uh, but made headlines this week by introducing a new version of its iBooks app that supports interactive textbooks. So, Seth, is this going to disrupt the textbook industry in the way that Apple disrupted the music industry with the iPod? Well, I know it's going to disrupt their their work because they're all going to have to scramble to, to explain to their bosses how they're doing uh, or what their strategy is to, to cope with Apple and to get onto this new uh, platform. I actually think it's a pretty crummy idea because most kids spend too much time plugged into Facebook and Twitter and all this other stuff anyway. And I have no idea how they're supposed to sit with an iPad and actually look at a textbook. I don't think it works at all. And, uh, and I think the research will, will eventually bear that out. There's two ways you can probably approach fixing that. One would be a, a nanny application, maybe, that keeps the kids on the textbooks. I, I suspect that the teenagers will have us outgunned there. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure my kids will, will know how to disable that. <laughs> but here, free business idea for Amazon, if they haven't already had it. Right. You make a cheap Kindle Fire, but you sell it just to parents, and it doesn't do any of the extra stuff except it just does books and rich textbooks, and that's it. So when you lock your kid in the room with it, they have the best of the technology without... Facebook and all that other junk distracting them. Well, the one the other burden or difficult thing is you have to pay 700 bucks for the iPad in the first place, which yeah. is not that cheap, you know, if you've got a, a couple of kids. Yeah, and according to that interesting Business Insider story, they downloaded like a tenth of a textbook and it took up a fourth or something of the space on an iPad. In other words, you would only you would not be able to carry a semester's worth of books on an iPad, even if you bought the most expensive <laughs> see, one. See, so instead so of five, three iPads. I was going to say, yeah. instead of five textbooks, you'd have five iPads? Well, or, you know, the... Uh, the obvious response to that is, well, you just download the stuff as you need it. The trouble is these are huge downloads and this would take a long time. And I mean, these could all be shrunk. Books themselves, even the color ones, don't take much. It's the video and everything else that takes a ton of space. But isn't it inevitable that this will all be digital one day, two yeah. decades from now? So there won't be those big backpacks I that my kids are lugging around. Learn the skills all. of the iPad. I mean, you saw you when the phone. I could see <laughs> when the phone the when the phone video. was invented. Seth would have been like, "That phone's gonna ruin us." Oh no, no, no. <laughs> people won't talk in face go, to face no, anymore. It goes a lot deeper than that. It, the way people learn has a lot to do with stuff like how they use their hands and everything, which is why you don't just give a baby a leapfrog, you know, calculator. My my kid has a leapfrog <laughs> calculator. A but they don't but they don't learn this they don't learn from it, maybe not at all. Certainly not the same way they do as if they're turning little objects in three dimensions. The same way you don't learn by pressing buttons on an iPad or typing, the same way that you would if you were spelling out words with a pencil on paper. For some things I think it's better. The interactivity. We yeah. teach things pretty poorly in school in, in some subjects. I yeah, I don't think it's for a lack of technology, though. And if the books are so heavy, you just leave them in your locker all the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, Ron Gross, James Early, Seth Jason. Guys, we'll see you later in the show. Coming up, we will talk business leadership and KFC and Taco Bell and Pizza Hut with David Novak, the chairman and CEO of Yum! Brands. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Yes, money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. One of the best ticker symbols in the entire stock market is Yum. It is also the parent company of KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. Yum Brands operates in 117 countries and employs more than 1.4 million people. 
David Novak is the chairman and CEO of Yum Brands. He's also the author of the new book, Taking People With You, The Only Way to Make Big Things Happen. David, welcome to Motley Fool Money. It's great to be with you, Chris. So what does it mean to take people with you? Well, first of all, you know, I don't think there's anything big you can do in your business or your life by yourself. So you need to take people with you to, 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 get, it, to get it done. And uh, I think too often uh, leaders think people will do something just because they tell them to do something. Uh, I think taking people with you is all about creating a, a, a winning culture, a winning work environment that inspires people to get things done for all the right reasons. Uh, there are a lot of great leadership lessons that you lay out in the book. Um, one of them is about... Uh, ways to recognize and reward employees. You've you've got some pretty unique ways of recognizing employees for their performance. Could you share a couple? Yeah, well, one of the most uh, effective ways to really inspire your people and have a lot of fun and create a winning environment is to, is recognition. So I always have had a lot of fun with recognition. And when I was president of KFC, I gave away a rubber chicken, uh, and I'd write on it, and then I'd number it and take a picture of the person and say, I'm going to put the picture in my office and then send them a, a framed picture as well. And I also gave them $100 because you couldn't eat a rubber chicken. <laughs> when I was president of uh, Pizza Hut, I gave away, uh, you know, these Green Bay Packer cheese heads. Uh, now, as uh, president or, or CEO of Yum, I give away these uh, these these big teeth uh, with feet on them uh, for people who walk to talk on behalf of uh, uh, of our customers. Uh, see, I think the more personal you can make your recognition, and the more there's a, a story behind it uh, and why you give it, I think it it means more. What do you think is your biggest weakness as a leader? And what systems have you put in place at Yum Brands to compensate for that? Yeah. Well, I think that the thing I have to, to, to be aware of is that, you know, sometimes your greatest strength can, can be your greatest weakness in the sense that, you know, one of the reasons, you know, why I think people like working with me is that I'm passionate and, you know, I'm, I'm energetic about what I'm working on. At the same time, you know, I've got to make sure that my passion doesn't overwhelm other people. I can get so pumped about, up about what I'm working on or what I want to get done that, you know, I, I, I got to be careful that, that, that I create an environment where it's okay for people to say, hey, you know, maybe this might not work or, you know, you might want to think about it this way because, you know, you got to create, uh, when you got my kind of passion you can, and you have the power that I have, you can, you can overwhelm people. So I have to watch that. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Novak, chairman and CEO of Yum Brands and author of the new book, Taking People With You, The Only Way to Make Big Things Happen. Um, You've had an amazing career at Yum Brands and prior to that at Pepsi. Um, What's been the biggest shift in your thinking about leadership over your career? I think the biggest shift that I've had as as a leader is, is, is more of what I accelerate. Uh, you know, I think I've always, my philosophies and principles have been pretty much the same. But, you know, I think that the biggest thing that I try to focus on is, is involvement. And I, I really learned that uh, the more you know, the more you care. So I think I spend more time on getting more people involved uh, and, and a part of the process than maybe what I would have earlier. The other thing that uh, I think has shifted for me is that you know I it's it's uh, there's always someone that will say that it can't be done every step of the way. Um, you know I think earlier on when when I thought about dealing with those kind of people, I thought that my conviction and what I believed in, I had to you know stay after it and get it done. 
even though there might be obstacles. Now I think my first inclination is to say, if someone says it can't be done, I want to understand why they say that. And then I can follow my convictions. So I think what I do a better job today of is understanding what the obstacles and barriers are and managing my, my conviction. You've talked to a lot of business leaders for your book. Um, one of them is Warren Buffett, who um, has a quote right on the front of the uh, the book. Uh, uh, Buffett's quote is, David Novak is the best at leadership, whether teaching it in this book or practicing it. When you look at Buffett as a business leader, what do you think makes him so effective? I think there's two things. Uh, number one is humility. I think Warren Buffett, given all of everything he's accomplished and done in his life and his standing in the world, he's a very, very humble person. And the second thing, he's an incredible learner. This guy is, you know, he's reading every paper, reads, he's up to speed on everything. He stays current. He's an unbelievable learner. And I think you take those two traits to, together, you've, you've got quite a, quite a leader. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Novak, chairman and CEO of Yum Brands. His new book is Taking People With You, The Only Way to Make Big Things Happen. You talk to a lot of business people in this book. Uh, Howard Schultz from Starbucks, Alan Mulally from Ford, uh, Jack Welch, uh, obviously the, the great former executive at GE. Uh, but there are also some surprising people in here. Magic Johnson. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I talk about Magic when I was with uh, Pepsi. Uh, he was one of our celebrities that we had for, for marketing. And uh, when he became HIV uh, positive, you know, he was uh, wondering, you know, whether his sponsors would stay behind him. And we, we quickly... Uh, told him that, you know, we would be 100% behind him. Uh, and, you know, I just had the opportunity to, to talk to him, and I asked him what it was like to be uh, uh, such a world-class athlete when he's coming up. And, and he said, you know, early on I, I scored all the points, but nobody was really that happy. Later on I, I realized that if I just passed the ball more and got everybody involved, uh, you know, guess what? You know, we'd still win, and, and everybody would be a lot happier. And so I made the decision to become the best passer I could possibly be. And I use that as a, as a great uh, story to, to, to amplify the fact that a leader's job is really to go from me to we. A Magic Johnson, could, he could make the hook shot when he had to make it. In fact, he did. He played center, even though he was a guard and won a major championship doing it. And he took over the game by himself, or at least it appeared that way. But he recognized that the only way that his team could be great is if he had a we attitude. You held uh, senior management positions at Pepsi. And in your book, you call out Crystal Pepsi as the biggest missed opportunity of your career. Why do you think it failed and... Why was it a missed opportunity? Well, first of all, uh, Crystal Pepsi was a phenomenal idea. It was totally intriguing to anybody that ever heard about it, and everybody wanted to try it. In fact, it had major trial when, when it was launched. Um, but one of the things that the franchisees told me when I, was, uh, when I came up with the idea, and, and you know, I did love the idea, I loved it so much I really didn't listen to, to, to one of the <laughs> obstacles, is that they felt that it needed to taste more like Pepsi. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it had uh, cola flavor to it, but they thought if I was going to call it Crystal Pepsi, it needed to, to uh, uh, taste more like Pepsi. 
And, you know, I basically was a heat-seeking missile and got that thing into test market and then got it national on the Super Bowl as fast as I could. And the single biggest issue we had with Crystal Pepsi was that it didn't taste enough like Pepsi. (laughs) And I think if I would have listened and solved that issue, made it taste more like Pepsi, it'd still be around today. And and I think it, it was a phenomenal idea. I mean, when we first came up with the idea and we went into test market with us, it was a lead story on Dan Rather's CBS uh, Nightly News. It was huge. It was a huge idea. Everybody's intrigued with it. And we did drive a tremendous amount of trial, but we didn't get as much repeat as we could have had. Coming up, we'll continue the conversation as we talk China and the Colonel's secret recipe. You're listening to Motley Full Money. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Novak, chairman and CEO of Yum Brands. I want to ask you a couple of questions about China, because I know that Yum does a tremendous amount of business in China. You're growing there. How does the dining experience at KFC and Pizza Hut in China compare to the U.S. equivalent? Well, Pizza Hut in, in China is, is full casual dining. Uh, we not only have pizza, we have pasta, we have rice-based dishes, we have uh, um, chicken, uh, steak, uh, we have a full asset utilization, uh, we have afternoon tea time, a full line of beverages, uh, you know, we have very upscale uh, facilities and uh, environment, and you know, it's it's a full casual dining experience. Um, in uh, with KFC, um, you know, we, we have uh, uh, basically inline units because in China, uh, drive-through is, hasn't really taken off yet, and the population is very concentrated. So we have big inline units um, and. The menu has, uh, we have breakfast, which we don't have here in the U.S. Um, we're even open 24 hours. So we, And we also have home delivery, um, or office, home and office delivery. So uh, very broad menu, uh, multiple proteins, and uh, uh, full. Uh, we have this unbelievable uh, line of desserts called egg tarts, which are, are fantastic. So, uh, you know, big, big difference. What do you think is the biggest untapped opportunity for Yum when it comes to China? Well, I think in the United States we have 60 restaurants uh, per million people of our three brands. In, in China, it's, it's three. Uh, so we're, we're on the very ground floor of, of China. The, the biggest thing that's going on in China right now that's exciting for our business is that there's 300 million people in the consuming class in China today. In the next eight years, uh, experts project it's going to be 600 million. So that's a tremendous tailwind as we go f- uh, forward in the future in terms of our growth. What's the biggest competitive threat in China? Is it similar to what you face in the United States? Well, the, the wonderful thing about our international business in China is no, uh, no uh, exception is that w- we have very little multinational competition. So McDonald's is our only competitor there of any real substance in China, uh, and we outnumber them three to, three to one. Uh, we're in over seven hundred and uh, over seven hundred cities today, uh, so we we have a big competitive advantage as as, as we go forward. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Novak, chairman and CEO of Yum Brands and author of the new book, Taking People With You, The Only Way to Make Big Things Happen. Uh, we've talked about McDonald's. They're clearly a leader in the industry. What have you learned from studying McDonald's? Well, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, is exciting about our company is we're actually stronger than, than, than McDonald's in a lot of markets. China is certainly one. Also in emerging markets, uh, 
we have a two to one advantage in in in, in the, the markets like uh, India, Africa, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam. So you know we we have big emerging market strengths where we're we're truly the power brand. Having said that, you know McDonald's is a a, a great global brand. And what we admire about them is that they've leveraged their 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 asset uh, 24 hours a day. You know, and, and we love how they have a big breakfast business, uh, and be- how they've uh, gone after beverages. And and so, um, you know, we we are working on many of uh, the same kinds of things. Um, um, I want to ask you about uh, another company that we've uh, studied pretty closely here at the Motley Fool, and that's Chipotle. Um, how has the success of Chipotle over the last five years influenced your company's thinking about Taco Bell? Well, first of all, uh, Chipotle has basis the analysis that we've done. Uh, when Chipotle's are in Taco Bell trade areas, there's it only impacts our sales less than less than one percent. So, you know, they really haven't hurt our sales. But I, what I we always look at competition as a great uh, source of inspiration. It doesn't matter whether it's Chipotle or Boston Market or, you know, you pick the competitor, uh, five guys in the hamburger segment. We look at them and we say, hey, if they're doing things in their uh, that are their, their business or their brand that's successful, how could we do something that would be similar or, or what I call pattern thinking that we could apply into our brand? So, you know, I think, uh, you know, Chipotle has a lot of different products and, and we can look at those and say, how, how can we do something similar, but to do it in a Taco Bell way uh, at, at, at half the price, which will be pretty compelling, I think, to customers. What's been the biggest surprise regarding Yum Brand's operations and growth over the last five years? I think the, the I don't know that it's a surprise because it's been very conscious, is, but the big bet that we've, we've made in, in growing our, our global business uh, is really paying off. 75% of our profits are outside the United States. Uh, China has, has just literally become a, 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 a tremendous growth engine uh, with over 4,000 restaurants. We've just made India a separate division in our company because we expect to open up over 100 restaurants a year there. Uh, so, and I think the other big surprise is that we have our highest average unit volumes in the world in France. You know, in with, France, yeah, with KFC. Which who would have thought that? That's that's really surprising, considering yeah, well, they everything. Love, they love food. They love great tasting food in France, and they they love to come in as groups, and they love uh, they love big meals, and they love the desserts. If I go into a KFC in France, can I get a glass of wine? Uh, no, no. No, you can get. We'll give you a nice cold Pepsi, though. <laughs> can 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 you work on that? Can you maybe can you maybe yeah. put in a good word for me? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll I'll see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not ask you uh, this question, uh, because uh, according to our reports, there are eleven herbs and spices in the Colonel's secret recipe, and I'm not asking you to divulge um, any secrets here, but I'm just curious. Do you know? The ingredients in the secret recipe? Uh, no, I do not. Uh, the, the really? The ingredients in the secret recipe are locked up in a safe here in our uh, KFC uh, restaurant support center, actually in a, in a vault. And uh, I believe there's only two people in the company that, that know that uh, recipe today, and they're obviously in our R&D department. You're the chairman and CEO. How is it you don't have access to the secret recipe? Oh, I don't need access to the recipe. All I do is just access to tasting that great tasting original recipe. <laughs> My favorite piece is the is the wing, by the way. 
The Wall Street Journal calls Taking People With You the only way to make big things happen, one of the top 10 books for your career. David Novak, Chairman and CEO of Yum Brands, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. You know, well, I'm a chicken fried and cold beer on a Friday night. A pair of jeans that fit just right and the radio. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me, Seth Jason, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, time for the stocks on our radar. We will bring in our man, Steve Brodo, from the other side of the glass to grill you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. Grill. Mm. Just yesterday, <laughs> I started looking at a company called Cameco. CCJ is the ticker symbol. They're actually a Best Buy Now recommendation over at Inside Value Service. Uh, they're a uranium producer, um, and they're, they're fully integrated mining, refining. Um, and the play here, uh, they're, they're betting on uranium production growing significantly in the future. Strong company, uh, nice balance sheet, pays a dividend. Uh, it's really a, a, the, the investment will hinge on uranium prices, at least in the in, in the near term and the midterm. Um, so I'll do some digging there, but it could could look interesting at current prices. Steve, I recently owned and then sold hmm. uh, Cameco for tax reasons. I had a loss in it. Did I make a mistake? <laughs> it's, it, it's, yes. too, it's too early for me to say, but I'm impressed that you need to do things for tax purposes. Well, I figure I had a loss in it. I thought I bought it after the stuff in Fukushima, thinking with you know that tragedy, uh, I thought eventually uranium prices would go back up. Uh, that didn't quite happen for me. So. <laughs> well, I'll let you know after I dig in. James, what's your stock? Chris, I've got two, actually. One Oak and One Oak Partners, sort of the same thing. It's a natural gas pipeline company, the Partners. And One Oak is a, is a gas utility that owns part of One Oak Part owns One Oak Partners and and also distributes gas to people in Oklahoma. It's supposed to stand for One Oklahoma, which is confusing because there are in fact two One Oaks. Um, but <laughs> I've been anyway. That is anybody still listening? Forever. Is anybody yeah. out there still? One Oak Main One Oak is up two hundred forty five percent, and the Partners is up one hundred percent. Income investor, so I'm, I'm happy with these the performance. They're both a little bit rich by my valuation model, but my question is, if we see a structural shift. To natural gas, they could have more room to run. They both have pretty nice yields now. Steve, can I buy them both? <laughs> you can certainly buy them both. Just know that, that they're going to be a little bit correlated. And to answer your question, Ron, yes, people are listening, especially <laughs> at KFAQ, our affiliate in I Tulsa, they, Oklahoma. I think they can't believe that we have valuation models. Seth, <laughs> well, Jason, what's your stock? Well, if James gets to do two, I get to do two. Absolutely. You're gonna you need to buy some Microsoft because they're doing well, even though they're treading water, and they're going to do better with their new products, the ones we already discussed. And you you might want to buy some Nokia because they're doing horribly, and they may do better. Uh, the phones, the Windows phones they're making, have gotten great reviews. Nokia is uh, one of the strongest brands in the world. Still, they're doing very well overseas, and I think they can turn it around. They probably need to shed some business units or certainly fix some uh, their their mapping service, for instance. Keeps losing money, but I think that you have a decent chance of making an outsized return. Steve? My question will be about Microsoft. I recently went to the first Windows store in Tyson's Corner Mall. I haven't Mall. been there yet. Uh, it's a total uh, knockoff. What do you think? Stuff. It is. It is a knockoff. It seemed like my a wife less said cool, it was really cool. My it was, wife, my it wife seemed like a less really cool Apple it. store to me. My wife uh, thought it was cooler than the Apple store. She said, especially the way you could sort of play with the Kinect and do some other things, and the, the way the, the people who ran around didn't act like they, uh, you know, their whatever didn't smell or. They were not the genius bar, let's say. They seemed friendly. All right. On that note, Seth Jason, James Early, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to our guest this week, David Novak, Chairman and CEO of Yum Brands. For video highlights, you can go to FoolTV.com. 
That's it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Roido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.